Coming to church, I suppose, is a very routine thing. We do it every Sunday and we often sit in the same seats. But it's not a normal thing. If you think about it, for the past uh, 2,000 years since Christ was on the earth, the message of what God did in Christ for us has been spreading across the world. From culture to culture, from city to city, from village to village, person to person, this message of the good news of God's grace, that we we call it the gospel, this message has been spreading throughout the world. And here we are this morning as a group of people united by the gospel. I suppose you could put the label over us, gospel people. Right? That's, that's who we are. We're, we're people gathered together because of the gospel. And so I can't think of anything much more important for us to do than to take the gospel itself seriously. To ponder it, to, to think about it, to look at it, to make sure that we understand it, to make sure we're living in light of it. And that's what we're going to do. Starting today and for the next six weeks, we're going to have a series on Sunday mornings where we're looking at an ancient document that is completely concerned with the gospel. And as we look at it, I think we'll discover not only is it an ancient document, but it's an incredibly relevant document. Because in this document, as we ponder the gospel together, perhaps for the first time, or perhaps in a, in a new way, we will discover just how wonderful the gospel really is. Who knows, maybe it will even transform us as individuals our families, even with God's help, this community. So let's turn together to this ancient document. You've got a copy in your Bible. It's called the Letter to the Galatians. Page 821. Let's get our Bibles open and we'll we'll keep them open for the rest of the message. Galatians, page 821. Just a, a little bit of background before we jump into the text. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he, he, was, uh, he was the rising star in Judaism. He, he'd had the best training, he'd had the best CV, he, he was the most zealous, I mean, he was really out to oppose anything that would mess with Judaism. And you know the story, maybe if you've read the book of Acts, you remember how Paul was there, he was involved in the killing of Stephen and all of that, until one day, as he's travelling on the road to Damascus, he encountered the risen Christ, and everything was transformed. It was, it was like he'd been set free from, from everything that had held him back and now here was Paul having to reprocess and think it through and make sense of, of this reality that Jesus is the Messiah, God's Son. He is the one. He, everything was new for Paul. And so Paul spent some time reprocessing and, and going over that. And as we read through Acts, it seems like in the next page, there's Paul preaching the gospel, but actually it's quite a few years Quite a few years as Paul reprocesses and prepares. But before too long, you see the new Paul, the uh, preacher of the faith that he'd once tried to destroy. We tend to think, don't we, of Paul as a missionary. And he was. He was sent and he travelled and he brought the gospel from culture to culture, town to town, life to life. And the gospel transformed people everywhere it went. (laughs) 
And so when we come to Acts chapter 13 and 14, we won't read them now, but you can take a look at them later, we find the first missionary journey, the way we label it. This is the journey of uh, Paul and Barnabas, the church at Antioch where they were based, uh, set them apart and sent them out, and off they went, and they traveled to Cyprus, and they spent some time in Cyprus, and then they sailed north, and they came up into what we would call Turkey. Uh, Perga, Pisidian, Antioch, and then they came up to three cities sort of in a row. Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. These are cities that uh, are in the southern uh, region of Galatia. Okay? And he comes to these cities, and as he comes there, he preaches the gospel, and he preaches in the synagogues, and he preaches to the, the pagans, and, and they respond. It's quite exciting. At one point, they're trying to sacrifice a bull to him, you know, and say, ah, this is, the gods of the Greeks have come amongst us. And so it's quite an exciting passage. And Paul kind of calms them down and communicates with them, no, 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 this is about God's grace. We're not gods, God's God. And he communicated the gospel, and the church was established. Uh, and it was a bit of a rough journey. He was chased out of town a bit, but... But he went back. He and Barnabas traveled back through those towns to follow up, to establish the churches, to put elders in place. And they came back down to uh, Pisidian Antioch and then to Perga, went down to was it Apollonia, I think. And then they sailed across and back home to Antioch. And that's the end of the first journey. And so when you come to the end of Acts 14, they're back in their home church, they're reporting all these good things that God has done among these Gentiles, among these people over there in that distant land. And then a report comes. And the report tells them that trouble is brewing in Galatia. In in these new churches, imagine Paul's heart just sinking when he heard that. False teachers had come in. And they were preaching a different message. In fact, they were preaching two things, really. First of all, they were critiquing Paul. They were saying, Paul, well, he's sort of an apostle, a bit of a mini-apostle. Should we call him a deputy apostle? He's not like the real deal big apostles, you know, the ones in Jerusalem. Paul's a lesser apostle. He's got his message from, from the apostles in Jerusalem, but somewhere on that journey, bits have fallen out of his message. You can't trust Paul. So they're critiquing Paul. And secondly, they're critiquing his message. They're seeking to correct it. They're saying Paul's message is incomplete, it's imbalanced. And so God sent us to help you to get things straight. Okay, we'll come back to that because we've got to grasp what the issue was if we're going to make sense of the letter to the Galatians. But let's get into the text and see. Uh, I think you'll spot it straight away how Paul immediately goes on the offensive. Those two issues. Is he a true apostle? And is his message the true gospel? That, that two, that combination, that pair of issues, that's immediately what Paul goes after from the very start. See if you can spot it as we read the first five verses of Galatians. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Feels like the end of the book, doesn't it? You see, he's, he's doing the normal thing. He's starting his letter Who's it from? Who's it to? Grace and peace. But it's not normal because he's immediately trying to get across some important things. Did you spot what he did? 
First of all, uh, is Paul a true apostle or is he just sort of a, a little mini apostle sent by some others? No, no, Paul says, I'm not sent by men or by man, I'm sent by God. Uh, and what's more, uh, by the way, notice verse 2, he says, and all the brothers with me. I'm not on my own, I'm not a maverick. But there's a whole load of us that stand with me in what I write to you. So he's immediately trying to answer this challenge to who he is and his right to preach to the Galatians. And then he presents the gospel, verses 3, 4, and 5. We could take six weeks on these three verses alone. Let's summarize them in a couple of minutes. I want you to spot four things here, okay? Four uh, things that are in these three verses that we need to notice as we look at them. First of all, notice that Paul takes sin very seriously. He doesn't beat around the bush. He talks about our sins and he talks about this present evil age. Now, Paul's not light when it comes to sin. He's, He's looking around, he's saying, look at the world around you, everywhere you look. From top to bottom, inside to out, everywhere, it's shot through with evil. And we are sinners and we are hopeless. We're desperate. We need to be rescued. This isn't a problem that we can fix. This is a desperate situation that requires a rescue. That's the first thing we need to notice. Notice the second thing. How are we rescued? What is the source of our rescue? Well, verse 3 grace and peace from how does he put it our God, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ it's the grace of God that rescues us it's the grace of God that that is the distinctive feature here of, of what Paul's message is all about, it's grace grace, grace, God is a God who is a giving God, a loving God, a gracious God Oh, and by the way, this isn't just a a sort of a hypothetical abstract. You want to see love in the concrete? Look at verse 4. It's right there. Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Isn't that just shorthand for Jesus came to the earth and went to the cross and died on the cross? A death that he didn't deserve, a death that we deserve because of our sin. He'd never sinned, but he died for us to rescue us from our sin. Isn't that just a shorthand version of that? And isn't it just what you'd expect if you really were gripped by the reality that our God is a God of grace? Not just in the abstract, but in the flesh. He gives himself for us. Oh, and it's not just the Son. Some people fall into this idea that Jesus is the gracious one, the Father is the angry one. That's not what this passage or any other passage says. Notice that Jesus was the one who gave himself for our sins to rescue us uh, from this present evil age. How? According to the will of God the Father. It was done the way God wanted it to be done. It's the grace of God the Father and God the Son working together to rescue us from the evil. That's the gospel. And so the third thing we need to notice is that when the grace of the Father and the grace of the Son are working together, which is the way God works, then the result of that is verse 5, to him be all the glory. Because glory is all about his love and his grace at work. And so we see that Paul took sin seriously. We see that we who needed to be rescued were rescued by God's grace. And we see that this grace of God leads to the glory of God. Fourth thing, notice in these three verses what our part is in our rescue. Let's take a look. Hmm. Hang on, let me check the footnotes. There must, must, must be something at the bottom of the page. Hang on. 
Huh. There's nothing there, is there? There's no earning it, deserving it, working at it, self-rescuing, self-delivering. There's no adding to it. There's nothing of us in this message, is there? It's purely the grace of God. That's Paul's gospel. That's what he preached. That's what had transformed their lives and established the churches. And now there was trouble. Because somebody or some people had come in and they were trying to change the message. Now, we need to take a few minutes just to be clear on what the false teaching was. And let me tell you why before I tell you what it was. Why is it so important that we're clear? Well, because depending on what the false teaching was, that will influence what our response needs to be or even what our attitude needs to be to this book. If the false teaching was, so, uh, was something that we would spot a mile off, just patently obvious, you can see it coming, uh, then we wouldn't need to worry about it. We could come next Sunday morning, bring a cup of soup in a mug uh, and a nice blanket and put our feet up and snooze through the message because, hey, we're safe. We're not going to fall for that false teaching, no problem. But if the false teaching that was coming into the churches of Galatia is a false teaching that could infiltrate our church, then we need to sit up, lean forward, and listen carefully. Right? To me, that seems logical. Either we are under threat or we're not. And so what was the false teaching? Well, you'll probably hear the word Judaizers. I I suspect as Ron and I preach our way through this book, we won't be able to avoid the word Judaizers. What Judaizer? What's that? Well, Judaizers were these teachers. They were Jewish background, Jewish emphasis, but they would call themselves Christian teachers. And coming into the church, what they would be doing essentially was trying to add back in the Jewishness to the gospel. And their message really boils down to one word. A single word that I think just covers the entire package of their false teaching. What would that word be? Let me give you a moment to ponder it. One word to summarize the false teaching of the Judaizers. I wonder if any of you are thinking of the word circumcision. If you've never read Galatians, you're probably not thinking of the word circumcision. But if, if you've had any exposure to Galatians, I'm sure circumcision is, is somewhere in your thinking. Now, was circumcision an issue? Was it a part of their teaching? Yes. Was that the best word to summarize the whole of their teaching? No. You see, the danger is this. If we think that the only uh, risk that the Galatian church was facing was the, the risk of circumcision teaching... Uh, That is, that you want to be a truly born-again Christian, you must be circumcised, men. You must be, you know, go through this procedure to become part of the true people of God. You know, if you're not circumcised, you're not really born again. You may be born a bit, but you're not born again, all right? If that is the whole package of the false teaching, uh, then I suspect we can put our feet up, bring a cup of soup, nice warm blanket, and maybe a pillow. And not stress too much, because, I mean, let's face it, we're safe, aren't we? I've only been in this church a couple of years, whatever it is, but I'm willing to guess that over 70 years of faithful ministry here at Ladyfield, I don't think that there's ever been a single time where somebody has preached that you have to be circumcised to be saved. What do you think, those of you that have been here a while, is that true? Never preached here. 
You have to be circumcised to be saved. It's not gonna, you're never going to walk in and find that the office has been sort of shut off and a sign put up and it's all been sort of sterilized. Little clinic set up for a surgical procedure so that we can get properly saved. It's never happened, never will happen. And if that's the only issue in Galatians, whew, we've got an easy few weeks, just relax. But that's not the issue. It's part of it. But it's part of a bigger package. The, the, the teaching of these false teachers can be summarized in one word that includes circumcision. And the word is easier to spell, but it's harder to spot. The word is this, three letters, L-A-W, law. This is what they were saying. They were saying, okay, uh, Paul, uh, you know, not, not, not a great apostle, mini apostle, you know, dropped a bit of his message, a little bit not trustworthy. We're here to fix it. We're here to fix Paul's teaching. You want to be truly saved, not born a bit, but born again? Well, here it is. If you want to be truly saved, you need to have the law. That is circumcision. You need to be circumcised to be truly born, to be fully born as a Christian. That's what they were teaching. But more than that, if you want to go on as a Christian, if you want to live the gospel to the full, then you need the law. You need the law. If you haven't got the law, you've only got half the package. That Paul, oh, man, he's so, you know, imbalanced. Grace, 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 all this grace stuff. It's a law. Let's put the law back in. Because when we put the law back in, then we've got a full package, and it is going to be well with our souls. That's what they're saying. That was their teaching. Here we are to fix the mess of Paul's imbalanced ministry. And we're going to bring law. Law for salvation, law for sanctification. That is law to get in and law to keep going. It's, it's all about the law. We need more law. And what a relief that they came. Now, here's the thing. If the false teaching is purely circumcision, we can put our feet up. But if the false teaching includes or is wrapped up in the concept of we need the law, now let me ask you a question. Over 70 years of ministry, has that ever been preached here at Ladyfield? Have we ever been told, you are obliged to keep the law? Ever heard that? Whew. Maybe we need to take notice of Paul in Galatians. Maybe we need to listen carefully to what Paul has to say in Galatians. Let me encourage you. Would you read through Galatians? This week, next week, the week after, in these coming weeks. Don't just, you know, I mean, listen to our messages as we preach it, but, but check it out for yourself. Read it through. I think it takes, what, 20, 22 minutes to, to read through Galatians out loud? Let me invite you. Would you maybe consider reading it through out loud three times a week for the next five weeks? Just, just for fun. Because you know what I've discovered? That the books that I read repeatedly, they're the ones that mark me and change me and thrill me and excite me. Let me encourage you, read Galatians and read it and read it again. And as we go through these Sundays, hopefully the messages will help it to become clearer that what, what Paul is saying here is so vitally important for us. Let's look at his uh, response. We, we heard it from Elliot, read very well earlier. We're going to look at it again. And I want you to see what is Paul's response to this false teaching. Now we've got a clearer picture of what it is. Let's look at how he responds to it. Now, if Paul was writing a letter in normal terms, what we'd expect to find would be this. Paul, uh, to you and wherever, 
grace and peace. Next phrase, almost every time, I give thanks to God for you. Alright, that's the next paragraph. That's what comes next, right? Not in Galatians. He doesn't say, I give thanks to God for you. What he says is, I am astonished. I am astonished. This is a rebuke coming up here. Now, I want you to, as we read this through again, look, what is he astonished about? And how strong is his response? Imagine there's a a sort of response meter from zero to ten, right? And there's this sort of, uh, like an odometer in the car, there's a little uh, indicator on there, a little little arm. How strong is Paul's response to what was going on in the churches of Galatia? Let's look at verses 6 to 10 again. Because this is really the, the launch of his message in response. He says, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, So now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were trying to please men still, I would not be a servant of Christ. So why is he astonished? Verse 6. Verse 6 is like a landmine just sitting in your Bible. And if you start poking around in verse 6, it will explode. Okay? This one is going to leave a mark on you if you spend long enough in verse 6. What is he saying there? I am astonished because you are turning. They're turning. After hearing the gospel and responding to the gospel and all that happened and the connections that were formed between them and God, now they're turning away. And what are they turning away from? Well, they're turning away from the gospel. But it's more than that. Notice what he puts first. First of all, he says, it's who they are turning away from. Who are they turning away from? The one who called you. They're turning away from God. Now, why is this such a powerful verse? Because when we pause and we think about what it was that they were doing, what it was they were buying into, this is an astonishing verse. You see, they were turning away from the gospel and they were turning away from God. What were they doing? Were they acting all rebellious and heading off into licentious sin and you know all sort of uh, gross worldliness? Were they being rebels? No. Were they leaving the church and going down the street and signing up at the local Baha'i temple or some other religion? No. What were they doing? They were becoming more religious. More Jewish. More, and quoting them probably, biblical. Is it possible? Is it possible? That we could become more scrupulously exact in our desire and attempt to fulfill the law and in doing that, be turning from God? 
Selah, as it says in the Psalms. Think about that. Is it possible that we could introduce the law to try to bring balance to a, a teaching that supposedly is imbalanced and in doing so, be turning away from God? That's what Paul's saying here. And, and how strong is his response to this? On that meter, how far over do you think it would go? Sort of 5 out of 10, or or what do you reckon? Maybe 10 out of 10? That's about as strong as it gets, isn't it? He says in verse 8, look, if I came back to you and I'd lost my spiritual marbles and I came back preaching a different message, or if an angel comes from heaven and preaches a different version of the gospel, which isn't going to happen, but if it did, eternal condemnation, that's what I'm calling for. That's strong, isn't it? But verse 9 is even stronger. Verse 9, he says, If anyone comes and preaches a different message from the one you received, which is happening, let him be eternally condemned. That's harsh. That's as harsh as it gets, isn't it? Surely that's out of order. I wonder if, if we can, uh, when we get to heaven, we can check the DVD library. I'd love to see the reaction of the people in the churches of Galatia when this was read. Do you think maybe there, some of them would say this? Paul, oof, steady on, old boy. I mean, you're not here anymore. And these guys have come in to serve us, and we need teaching. And, and you know what? There are some people in our churches who've been helped by their message. Some people have found their message very challenging. Steady on, Paul. Don't, don't blow your lid. It's a bit much. Just calm down. It's okay. Paul doesn't take that advice, does he? As far as Paul's concerned, if somebody's bringing in law and trying to add it to grace, eternal condemnation is what they deserve. It doesn't get more serious than that. You see, here's the gospel. The gospel is completely and utterly about God's grace. It's nothing to do with what we do, could do, or will do. It's all God's grace. God's love, God's giving, God's self-giving, God's God's kindness and his mercy. That's the gospel. And if you add law to the gospel, do you have more? Not according to Galatians, you have less. If you add law to the gospel, do do you have more godliness? No, you have less. We'll see that in chapter 5. If you add law to the gospel, do you have a, a more complete gospel, a more balanced gospel? No, you have another gospel, a perversion of the gospel. If we add law to the gospel, we will throttle the grace out of the gospel. And Paul says, no way. Don't go there. There's no space for that. You cannot add the law to the gospel and think that you're going to benefit from it. It's going to strangle, it's going to squash, it's going to kill. This is powerful, isn't it? I just kind of want to go in a dark room and pray and ponder this stuff because this is, this is astonishing. But this is what he's saying. You cannot add law to the gospel and say you've got a better gospel. What you have is a perverted gospel that's worthy of condemnation we're going to cover the rest of the passage quite quickly because I think it's quite clear what he says next what he does is, is he, uh, he takes the two issues his apostleship and, and his message that, that Paul's not a real apostle and here let us correct his message he takes that and he says okay let me just fill you in a little bit here and these are two questions that are massively important to us Firstly, is Paul a trustworthy apostle or not? That matters because 13 books in our New Testament are written by Paul, right? 
If Paul is somehow a lesser apostle, if Paul somehow got it wrong, if Paul was somehow out of balance, we need to know that and we need to stop placing emphasis on what he says. This is a massively important issue for us here at Ladyfield. Or if Paul's a true apostle, then we can preach his word with confidence, his messages, his books with confidence as God's word. And then the second issue, is his gospel imbalanced? Is it sort of this, you know, God's grace, no law gospel? Is that just wrong? Is that needing correcting or not? Because we need to know that. As a church, as individuals, as families, we've got to know that. Does this pure God's grace, no law gospel, does it need fixing or is it the truth? Let's look at these next two chunks of text and, and see how Paul addresses that. It's quite straightforward. I don't think we need to add too many comments Maybe just a couple as we go through this. So first of all, on the question of, is Paul a trustworthy apostle, or is he sort of a deputy that was sent from the the real ones in Jerusalem, and as he came, he dropped a significant chunk of the message out of his pocket. Is, Is that what Paul is? Well, look at verse 11 and following. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Let let me pause there for a moment. You see what he's saying? I didn't rush to Jerusalem for a seminar in in full gospel ministry. I went out into Arabia. That's like desert. And then back to Damascus. I I think these first three years after Paul was converted, he's reprocessing. Thinking it all through. Oh my goodness, Lord, if if you are, if if Jesus is the Messiah, oh my, this changes every, what does this mean for this and that? And oh, I need to think this through, I need to pray this through. And Paul processed and he processed and he processed and he did not process in Jerusalem, he processed with God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not called by men, I'm not trained by men, I'm not sent by men, I'm called by God, I'm trained by God, I'm sent by God. I'm a real apostle. You can trust what I preach. Uh, Then verse 18, he says, After three years, I, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, and I stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Isn't that beautiful? He just says, look, check the facts. Check out the facts. The facts are, I didn't go to Jerusalem and get trained by the Jerusalem uh, apostles and get sent by the Jerusalem apostles. I was called and trained and sent by God. I did pop up for a visit, and I I spent 15 days with Peter and James. I didn't meet any of the others. 
And, and then I wasn't even in the region, I was in Syria and Cilicia, uh, so that the whole region of Judea, that, that is where uh, the region around where the apostles were living, the other ones, Paul says, I wasn't even in the region, all they heard about me were rumours. Hey, the one who persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Ooh, imagine. They were all over Twitter. And they were praising God because of what God had done in Paul's life. Paul says, look, the facts do not match up with the critique. Those false teachers can come in and they can say, Paul's just a mini-apostle. He's not a real apostle. You don't need to take what he says seriously. It's just his opinion. You know, we need to have a more balanced message. No, not at all. Paul says, what I preach is trustworthy because who I am is trustworthy. I'm called and I'm trained and I'm sent by God. And then he comes to the other issue, the message. Does his message need correcting? Let's do the same again. Let's walk through the next uh, chunk here. And again, we don't need too many comments here because I think it's really pretty plain. Fourteen years later, now I think that's fourteen years from conversion, so eleven years after his previous visit, he says, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Now let's stop there because I don't want us to miss the point here. Paul is not saying, I went to Jerusalem and I wanted to get them to endorse my ministry because they're more important than me. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, you can read about it at the end of Acts 11, what we call the famine visit. There was a revelation, a prophet, I think it was Agabus, stood up and talked about the famine. And and Paul and and Barnabas, and here he tells us Titus, took a gift. And they they brought this gift to the church in Jerusalem uh, as a sort of a love gift from the Gentile believers to say, look here, we're standing with you as you're struggling. Here's a gift. And then, in private, it wasn't a big scene, it wasn't the main reason he was there, but in private he he, he goes in with uh, with the apostles. And he says, look, listen guys. Let me just run by you the message I'm preaching to the Gentiles. Not because he wants them to approve of him, but I think he's checking out their version. Because he's convinced what he's got is from God. And he doesn't want to come with a gift speaking of the unity of the church and then discover that the apostles in Jerusalem are preaching a different gospel. And so there's a little quiet meeting, not a big scene. And he, and he just lays it out. He says, this is, when I preach, this is what I preach back in Antioch up north to the Gentiles. Are you okay with this, guys? What do you think? And he laid it out before them. What's their response? This is massively important. Did they tweak? Did they fix? Did they add? Did they balance? Well, first of all, he he goes off on a bit of a sidetrack. And talking about Titus, he he brings Titus back into it. He says, verse 3, Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. He was Gentile. Now, why would he say that? Because this matter arose... Because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. That's scary, isn't it? Nothing quite as scary as an infiltrator. Someone that could actually slip in through the door and sit on our seats in our midst and speak to us. And That's what happened there in Jerusalem. Some people had sneaked in. And they were spying out the freedom that is ours in Christ, and, and Paul says, did we allow the pressure to, to result in Titus's being circumcised? Look at verse 5. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Now, Titus wasn't circumcised, 
Because that was coming from the false teachers, not from the true teachers, not from the apostles. Speaking of the apostles, what did they say? Look at verse 6. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Anyway, those men added nothing to my message. Nothing. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter, as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work uh, in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles, James, Peter, and John. Recognize those three names? Peter, James, and John. We always think of those three, don't we? The close three with Jesus. Now, Peter and John, that's the same. This is a different James. This is uh, not James the brother of John, but James the brother of Jesus. You see, I think what happened was that when James the brother of John was killed by Herod, and you read about it in Acts, it seems like the leadership of the church in Jerusalem immediately replaced him. They wanted to maintain the plurality of leadership in the central church. And so James, the brother of the Lord, and Peter and John, these three apostles, but really we could almost call them the three elders uh, amongst the apostles, these three, and and what does he label them as, verse uh, 9? Those reputed to be pillars. They gave me and Barnabas what? What did they give them? Did did they give them a, a lecture? A talking to, a seminar, a a pack of notes? Did they give them a little bit of extra? Did they give them a critique? Did they give them the rest of the message that somehow they dropped somewhere along the way? No, what did they give them? Look at what it says. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Powerful, isn't it? Did they add? Did they critique? Did they fix? Did they bring balance? No. When they heard and they saw the message of God's grace in Paul, this God's wonderful, amazing grace, no law gospel, the apostles in Jerusalem said, put it there. We're with you. We're we're, we're with you. We're excited about what God's going to do through you amongst the Gentiles as we continue to do the same thing here amongst the Jews. We stand together. Oh, by the way, uh, guys, before you go, please remember to help the poor because, you know, we really are suffering here. And Paul says, of course, that's what what I came to do in the first place. That's why I brought the gift. Of course, I will remember to help the poor. And, And for Paul, that becomes a big issue for the rest of his journeys. Getting gifts to bring back to Jerusalem to show that there's one gospel, one church, and it's united. And that one church is built on the gospel of God's grace. A grace of God, extravagant, amazing, over-the-top grace of God. No law kind of gospel. My prayer for us, as we go through Galatians in these next weeks, listening to the sermons, reading the book, my prayer is in two parts. First of all, I pray that that God would, by His Spirit, turn on the radar inside of us. They'd flick the on switch and that the radar would start to beep and that we would become sensitized so that we can spot when somebody infiltrates. We can spot when false teaching is heard in our ears. And instead of celebrating, we can recognize it for what it is. That's the first part of my prayer, that we would recognize that grace plus law is no gospel. It's a perversion of the gospel. Second part of my prayer is this. 
not, not just negatively, that we'd spot the error, but positively, that as we read Galatians, and as we spend time in God's Word, and as we spend time fellowshipping with one another, and as we spend time in prayer, that our hearts would be thrilled by the true gospel by the freedom that is ours in Christ. And as we pursue this and as we ponder this together over the next three, uh, sorry, next five weeks, uh, my prayer is that, that our hearts would just be absolutely overflowing with delight because of the wonderful, amazing grace of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. I pray that our radar would be turned on. Even more than that, that our hearts would be thrilled. Because the gospel is so, so, so good. Amen.